Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com, where you can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can find details of our events in person and on Zoom, including on October the 22nd, George F. Will on his new book, American Happiness and Discontents. Now, coming up on the show today, Anne-Marie Slaughter, former Director of Policy Planning for the State Department during the Obama administration, President and CEO of New America, and author of the new book, Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. Uh, Anne-Marie, welcome to Bookstack. It's my pleasure to be here. So congratulations on the book. Um, And its context, you say, is that for the past five years, Americans have lived in a state of continual crisis. Yes, you know that I, I wrote that in the preface uh, after after writing the book, and as I was thinking about it, and the book opens with a personal crisis that I went through in 2017, so four years ago. But more broadly, ever since the 2016 election, it has felt like there, there was sort of one crisis on top of the other, and and President Trump deliberately uh, kind of kept things off balance his media strategies, uh, the constant news of division in the country, which his election reflected and deepened, the sense of change due, obviously, climate change, the constant news of really terrible weather and knowing that it's not accidental is, I think, at least for our children and and really for my generation as well, uh, creates a sense of uh, very least the sort of sword of Damocles hanging over you. Uh, and then the 2020 election on January 6th, you know, again, our democracy feels like it's in crisis. The planet is in crisis. And then there are all the associated things, uh, inequality uh, and, and sort of an inability of, of really millions of people to live flourishing lives. I think there there has been a sense of pretty much continual crisis. And you you say in that preface that this really has had an impact on civic discourse. You say that we're adrenaline depleted, uh, that we've little time for nuance or reflection. So so in some ways, this book is is an attempt to try to raise the level of discourse. I think that's right. It's a, it's almost a a challenge to readers and to organizations and and even to the country to say, I think we need to renew. Uh, and we will talk about exactly what I mean by that. I think we re- need to renew our best selves. So if you're talking about individuals, I'd say our best selves. If you're talking about organizations or a country, I'd say renew a commitment to our best selves, which is generally ex- expressed in a mission statement or with the country in the Declaration of Independence and, and other documents. And I'm I'm really saying, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna do something that is radically counterintuitive in today's social media world. Uh, and that is to be radically honest about my, a crisis that I went through uh, and above all about sort of facing my own flaws and my own mistakes uh, with radical honesty. And I'm going to then use that as a jumping off point for a process of transformation. I'm challenging people to take it in with the sincerity it is meant. Many people said, you're crazy to do this. 
You know, our world has no room for nuance. People will just take whatever you've admitted and hurl it back against you. I mean, I'm either a sap or an idealist or both, but I don't believe that. I believe there are enough people who will, in fact, uh, respond to this challenge that it was a risk I thought worth taking. Yeah, it it definitely is one of the surprises in the book that you put your own personal um, experience. You, in fact, you describe it in the book as the worst day of your professional life, where there were accusations of firing an employee at New America on the orders of a big donor, and and you start the story with that, and you're very upfront about that. Um, on one level, defending your actions and and your propriety, but at the same time recognizing that uh, mistakes were made. And, and owning those mistakes. So, so this this is not just a, a generic book about how America can be better. This is something that is very much rooted in your own personal, I hate to use the word, but your own personal journey. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I, I write about how one of my board members told me to run toward the criticism and use it as a learning journey. A learning <laughs> journey is so cliched, but, but it is a journey. And, and I did learn a great deal along the way. You know, I, I start with that, that it was the worst day of my professional life, both because I really do think that it's going to require that level of radical honesty for individuals, for organizations, for the country, and I want to model it. But I'll also say I wanted to write a book that would reach far beyond usual policy circles or you know people who will read books about what America needs to do. And the experience of writing why women still can't have it all in the Atlantic in 2012, which I really thought I was writing for quite a small audience, but it went viral. And I later realized part of the reason was I had been personal. And that if you're, if you write in a more personal vein, you can reach audiences that you're never going to reach if you stick to even a kind of policy books, much less really academic books. So there was there were two reasons uh, for writing it that way. Yeah, I was I was very taken by the honesty. There's a there's a very touching moment actually in the book when uh, you talk about the conversations that you'd had with the board, uh, and that one of the things that they insist on is that uh, you are going to take on a leadership coach, and 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 you mm-hmm. talk about how this is something that you've written about that you're one of the world's leading experts on leadership itself, and so having to kind of go through this coaching is something which is kind of deeply personal. And to share that in the book, I, I, I mean, that, that really does require a level of honesty that I think any reader would respond to. It's, you know, I smile as you're saying that because I agree with you when, when I first uh, heard from the board that they thought I should get a coach. It, wasn't, it, it doesn't mean good things. It means they think you need some help. But I, I also now look back on that experience as just totally positive. You know, I write about my coach, Penny Hanscom. Of course, I asked her if I could use her name. And she was wonderful. And I, I you know, coaching is the corporate word for therapy. And I'm not embarrassed to have had therapy. And I, I think, and I think it's a, I think we actually should be very open about it because many people who need help are afraid to get it. Uh, but this was really, she did make me a better leader, not by telling me things, but 
you know, as any good therapist does, by asking me questions and helping me explore and face things that that were hard to face, but also figuring out what I wanted uh, and where where I could actually turn to others to complement uh, my my strengths and my weaknesses. In other words, I, I write a lot about learning to lead in a much more collective way. Um, and there are lots of folks out there who have coaches. I've been on boards long enough to know that there are many more leaders than may be willing to admit it, but uh, it's a fast-growing industry. And the, the word that really keeps coming back throughout the entire book is this notion of resilience, that, that really resilience is something that you discovered as an individual and which was important to you, uh, but it's also something that the country needs to rediscover. Uh, to use one of the phrases that you have in the book, that resilience is not just about bouncing back, it's about bouncing forwards. Yes, Yes, and that is something that I borrowed from a book called uh, Type R, uh, and it really is a, a theory of adaptive resilience. So that that I I think we often think about resilience as a synonym for endurance. You know, you just kind of hunker down like a rock and let you know the winds and the waves wash over you and hope you come out the other side, as opposed to again thinking about whatever it is that you have to be resilient in the face of a crisis, a disaster, as a as a kind of springboard, as a way, yes, of bouncing forward, but even more importantly, of changing. Again, the, the, and we, we are in a moment of such uncertainty in so many ways that there are a lot of people writing about adaptive leadership, being able to, to take whatever comes and turn it in the right direction. This is a version of that, but it's it's deeper. It's saying you will be more resilient if you think about it as an opportunity to head in a new direction. And you will be more resilient if you do that with a lot of others. So I also say resilience is a team sport. Uh, and that was new to me. I thought of it again as a very individual uh, endurance-like quality, and I no longer think about it that way. So in the in the book, you talk a, a lot about these kind of ideas about resilience. You you used the phrase earlier about running towards criticism. You talk a lot about uh, risk taking and nonconformity and so on. So what what do these actually mean in practice? When when we think about politics in the United States today, what what do those things bring to the debate? How do they change the narrative? Well, let's start with risk taking because the United States prides itself on being highly entrepreneurial. It has a whole narrative of individualism that I, that I challenge later in the book, but it's certainly part of our narrative. And, and being entrepreneurial, and that we are the land of entrepreneurs. We're the land where you can come and have a dream and pursue it and, and create things. And one of the things I discovered through my own crisis, but also doing a lot of research, was that risk-taking requires a measure of security, which sounds paradoxical, but it isn't if you think about it. If, if, if you break, the, if breaking the rules means you could lose a job, and losing a job means you could lose your house and find yourself on the street, you are not going to take that risk, right? Anybody who takes a risk has some cost-benefit calculation, and if the and, and I discovered this myself in this crisis, where I've always thought of myself as a risk taker. But risk-taking for me was not going to a big New York law firm and instead 
kind of hanging out and finishing a PhD until I could figure out what I wanted to do. That, you know, I had plenty of cushion. I had parents, I had fancy degrees, I had plenty of cushion. Suddenly I realized at 59, I could lose my job and not get another one because the accusation was of a kind that really would have been damaging. I'm an, I was an academic for a long time. You cannot compromise your intellectual independence. And so I, I realized, wait a minute, you know, when, when you, your life is really on the line or the quality of your life or your home or whatever else, you, you stop taking risks. You start being very conservative and holding on to what you have. And a lot of research backs that up, that if we really want a nation of entrepreneurs, a nation of people who feel like they can take risks in the service of their ideals and the service of their dreams, we have to provide a baseline level of security. Uh, and, the, and I guess the place I'd end with that is Silicon Valley is the great entrepreneur story of the last couple of decades. But the kids who go out to Silicon Valley to found a startup typically drop out of college and often a very good college. And then when they raise money for their new startup, they raise it first from friends and family. It's called the friends and family round. That tells you right there that they've got a lot of cushion, that they may fail, but they're not going to fall very far. Yeah. And as, as you say in the book, that renewal, the kind of thing that you're talking about, it, it is a risky business. And, and perhaps <laughs> one of the lessons of the, uh, of the book is that sometimes we forget that that's, that's true wherever you are in the workforce. Yes. Yes, exactly right. Uh, and I think particularly at a time when we are going through, you know, a digital revolution that is the equivalent of all four industrial revolutions rolled in together, electricity and steam and the combustion engine. And many of us are not nearly as secure as we think. And we do have to take risks. I, I advise my children and my mentees, you know, look, don't think about it, your career in terms of jobs. Think about it in terms of developing a portfolio of talents that you can turn to many different purposes. But that's a highly risk acceptant approach. And again, I think if, if, as a matter of public policy uh, and a matter of sort of how we think about providing for our own children, you have to provide a minimum level of security. And you do, you do talk about how it's so easy to be cynical about these things. That, but 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 you point out that we we actually really need a, a kind of a, a a sincerity in these kind of things to recognise what is going on, to recognise the faults in ourselves and the faults in society too. Um, if if we're going to address exactly these problems that you're outlining. I think that's right. One of the things that, that living in this culture of social media does, one, of course, is that it drives people to extremes, but it also rewards cynicism and snarkiness. You know, if you're on Twitter and you want something to be retweeted, you just be snarky, just be nasty. It's really easy then for others to sort of laugh. Sincerity is rarely, you know, as appealing. On the other hand, yes, this the United States is a country founded hypocritically, but nevertheless founded on a set of ideals in which people throughout our history, particularly great change makers, have been willing to take words seriously. Have been, I mean, just think about Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, uh, but Martin Luther King talking about the language of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, all humans are created equal, as a promissory note 
you know, that that was an actual promise that has not been cashed. And I do, you know, I think you have to be willing to not be embarrassed to be, as I said, a little sappy. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but to I've I, you know great leaders have called people to be the, their best selves and I've seen that just in my own life even you know with leaders I really admire they're people who you feel a little ashamed if you're too gossipy or too nasty in front of them they 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 exude a sense of larger purpose and we are at a moment in our country where we need that and I actually think far more Americans will respond to that. Uh, and I think President Biden is trying. It, it, it's probably going to take non-politicians to do a lot of this, uh, to simply kind of end run the, that, that our current tendency to divide everything into red and blue. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that right at the end of the book, actually, you uh, you give the example of Lin-Manuel Miranda as being somebody who does precisely that, that Hamilton is exactly the kind of imagination and engagement with the past, but which also confronts that past sometimes in a, in a quite visceral and, and direct way. Um, that Those kind of things, they, they do have an impact, don't they, on the public imagination? Oh, enormously. You know, when I first saw Hamilton, I remember there's a moment where you go from Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda's lyrics to Washington's farewell address seamlessly. <laughs> you know, the quality of his, you, know, you, don't, you really don't realize that suddenly he is actually quoting Hamilton's words. We think that Hamilton wrote Washington's farewell address. But the number of kids who now have a sense of that period of history, including, uh, you know, the hypocrisy of it, because there's Jefferson and, you know, he's he's being attacked at the time for uh, not only his own enslaved people, but having obviously a relationship with Sally Hemings. Uh, but they also have a sense of what, what those men were fighting for and, and superbly, and I'm, I had chills when I first saw it, seeing the founders uh, as men and women of color was exactly the vision of universality that the founders talked about but did not achieve. Uh, and so I found it so powerful. And it's, it's, it's definitely one of the, the themes that runs through your book, this kind of uh, going backwards and forwards between what's happening today and history. And you like examples of other people who do that too. So you use Frederick Douglass and the pride that he has in the Declaration of Independence while also calling out the hypocrisy in the De Declaration of Independence. That we, it, it almost seems to me that you're saying that we need both. Absolutely. I, and that is why I call it renewal, because I could have used many words. I, have, I obviously love words. I care about them. I think they matter. But renewal has this dual quality of going backwards and forwards at the same time. So it's not reinvention. It's not a whole new you. But it's certainly not restoration of what was. It is looking backwards to what already existed. That's the re part. And in my view, then facing the past, again, with radical honesty. At the same time, the new part is going forward. Uh, and often we talk about renewing a covenant, renewing vows. There's often a sense of calling ourselves to higher purpose. And that backward and forward dynamic, I think, is essential for, for again, an organization, a person, but above all for the United States at this moment in our history. Because we are 
moving from a majority white nation to a plurality nation. We have to, to tell our whole history. And that means for people like me who grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and with uh, my grandfather was a, a football and golf coach at the university. You know, if you grow up in Charlottesville, it's like Jefferson walks the streets, you know, Mr. Jefferson. And you go to Monticello, and I could practically give you a tour of Monticello. I went so many times. But that Monticello never mentioned enslaved people and never mentioned Sally Hemings, never, never questioned the the narrative of Jefferson as the great genius who was the you know the one of the fathers of the country sort of and an inventor and an architect and all of these great things today you do see lots of things to celebrate but you also see that Monticello was a plantation that Jefferson never could have done what he did without hundreds of people of enslaved men women and children working for him that he, he had children and they remained enslaved with his wife's half-sister, who was an enslaved woman. So again, uh, rape or at least coerced sex. And you, 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 it's not, they don't, this is what's so important is that you don't try to resolve one over the other. You have to sit with both. And you just have to sit with them and accept them. But it, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because you you tell a, a story in the book of exactly that of of a, of a tour and and some visitors saying, but you know, why why are you telling us all of this? We 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 don't really want this. We've we've come to to revere Jefferson and and to, and to look round the the estate and we we don't want to hear all these stories. <laughs> yes, and indeed, there's a New York Times story that that talks about. Uh, some people who go to the new Monticello who say exactly that, you know, they get quite angry. I am saying in this book that if we want to be the country we claim to be, conservatives and, and, and liberals, indeed, I talk about patriotism and the way it seems to be only framed uh, on the right rather than the left, but I believe that there, there is a national desire to, to be those things then we can't just see one side. Then you will not be what Jefferson said we should be, whether he lived up to that or not, unless you are willing to face the truth. And I think Jefferson himself understood some of that. Some of his writings make clear that he understands that his own hypocrisy uh, is, is deeply dangerous. Uh, and but so I, I am challenging the country, but I'm challenging both sides because I'm, I'm definitely challenging folks who are more on the right to face our whole history. But I'm also saying to many folks on the left that there are things to love and celebrate and that I call myself a patriot. I'm in the in the spirit of James Baldwin's patriotism because he said, I love my country so much that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. And I don't see a, a contradiction between holding our country to sort of the highest version of itself uh, and criticism. But, you know, patriotism is is a word that many folks on the left are at least at the very least very uncomfortable with. Uh, so I'm actually challenging folks on both uh, on both sides of the political spectrum. Because, as you say in the book, uh, quote, as, as Americans, we can't separate the progress from the pain. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And much of the progress has been made by facing the pain. And again, if you look, Frederick Douglass is such a great example because the first half of his speech on the 4th of July reads like the most triumphalist narrative you could possibly imagine. I, mean, I couldn't do any better.
And then suddenly he turns and he says, what is that to me? You know, I was enslaved and you are celebrating liberty. And the second half is as, as stark a criticism as I could muster. And yet at the end, he comes together. He believes. He, and that in the end, this, is, this book is an appeal to, uh, to believe. So you've been uh, you've been involved in as as an intellectual in the kind of the nitty gritty of politics as well when you were director of of, of policy planning at the, for the State Department. So you've you've kind of worked on both sides of of the of as an action intellectual, somebody thinking but also doing. What what do you think are the are the prospects for the kind of renewal that you're aiming for? Uh, what what what's your take on politics today? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in it. Uh, I did serve in the State Department for two years. And of course, New America is headquartered in Washington. Although we have people all over the country, we are deeply engaged with the federal government on issues like education reform and technology policy and uh, sort of thinking about uh, how to build an entire infrastructure of care. So I know what politics looks like up close. I that is not what I personally am best at, although I'm 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 very really privileged to be able to run an organization that does that work. I believe at this moment to transcend our politics, and I don't believe you can abolish politics or anything like it, but I do think we can deeply reform our politics. And we have before, a hundred years ago, senators were elected by the upper house of of state legislatures, and now then they were directly elected. And of course, women didn't have the vote, and then we gave women the vote. So we can make big changes, and I, and I think we have to. I think we have to make major reforms, really on the scale, certainly, of the Great Depression, or the 60s, uh, or, or really the late, you know, the 1860s or 1870s. But to do that, we, we can't start with politics. There has to be this sense of possibility uh, so that, that, it, it, that it really is this common vision of what we could be and what we could achieve. So much of what I think afflicts America is the sense that somehow, somehow things went off the rails. You know, we used to travel and, and not necessarily think that everything in America was better, but at least it was on a par with many countries that we traveled in. I find now when I travel, groups of Americans will sit around and talk about how broken the country is, how our healthcare system doesn't work, how our infrastructure is falling apart. I deeply believe you have to get people uh, hoping and dreaming in a way that then allows for an expansion of possibility. And part of that, it does have to be political reform to be really the world's first mass, multiracial, multi-democratic uh, republic. And and do you think that's going to be something that is going to come from the new generation? It's, it's very striking that the current leadership uh, in Washington is, is kind of very, what's the word that we would use, very 20th century, people who were formed during the Cold War and so on. Uh, do, you, do you think that the current generation, the current leadership in Washington will be able to do that? I do think that that President Biden and his administration are 
trying to lay a foundation for that scope of change. We'll see if they make it, but if they don't, it won't be for lack of trying. I think interestingly, although President Biden is definitely 20th century, he also has grandchildren and he sees himself, I think, as you know, the, the last runner in the 20th century relay handing off to a, to a new 21st century. And in many ways, you know, ending the wars in Afghanistan, and in Iraq, of course, those are wars that were brought, that happened because of 9-11, but they also are still wars being fought in a 20th century way. Our 21st century conflict will be much more digital and much more automated. Uh, and so I think he is at the very least determined to build a foundation for what we need to be, even if he's not going to be able to create a new politics. Uh, and again, this is not harmony. I believe in politics and, and clashing interests. Uh, but I do think a reconfiguration of our politics does depend much more on younger generations. Yeah, I suppose it's quite striking, isn't it, that at the beginning of the of the of this century, we had uh, President George W. Bush and Barack Obama, who were both young presidents. Uh, now we've we've moved to a situation where Donald Trump uh, was in his seventies, Joe Biden was in his seventies. The leadership in the uh, in the House and and the Senate. It 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 is quite striking that we've moved from this this younger generation back to an older generation, and I can't quite work out what that means and what it means for the prospects of renewal that you're talking about. Well, that's interesting. And it, you're right. Uh, I, I've thought about it, obviously, with, with President Biden, but it is striking across the Senate and the House. Uh, and indeed, you know, senators in their 80s running again. Uh, Chuck, I think Chuck he, Grassley just announced that he will be running again. And he's, I what, that's right. mid-80s, I think. Right. And, you know, as somebody who is, I'm a baby boomer, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to think I've got a couple more decades Quite right. uh, of working in different capacities. But but it, it may again just be that what is coming is going to be different and it's not fully formed. Now, you have seen more on the far left and the far right, right? So you've certainly seen Democratic Socialists and, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, and you've also seen much some younger, really hard right uh, folks as well. That isn't going to get us there, right? The, the, if you look across polls, you see tremendous dissatisfaction. But but even as the parties have been pulled to the left and the right, that's because of the nature of our primary system, much more than it is reflecting what a majority of Americans want. So it may just be that that transition the, the, the kind of organization you're going to need to really, I think, privilege planetary issues. I mean, to, to privilege climate change, inequality, uh, a sense of just being left behind that, that fuels so much anger that, that the, 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 some of the leaders are there, but they're, they haven't been able to organize the infrastructure that actually gets them elected. And it may be that baby boomers like me are just too scared to let go. And it, and it does sound as if you are still hopeful for the future of the United States, that you do think that in spite of, of all the uh, discontents that uh, are so often written about, that there, there genuinely is a sense of hope for, the re for renewal. I do believe that. And I believe that because so many 
of the what I think of as the new Americans. I mean, again, our our population changed a great deal in the second half of the 20th century, so that we are becoming a plurality nation, a country that reflects the whole world, right? Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, not just Europe, which was uh, mostly in this in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, obviously we did have immigrants from other places and enslaved Africans were brought here, uh, but most of the voluntary immigrants did come from Europe. When I talk to Indian Americans, African Americans, uh, you know, Hispanic Americans, Arab Americans, they're Americans. And so many have a keen sense of how much better this country is than wherever their their uh, ancestors fled, which used to be true of European Americans as well. And I see so much possibility. I really, you know, to, to me, innovation, creativity, all of that comes from the collision of different cultures and different ideas. And if we can find a way to collide without tearing each other apart through a sort of common sense of values and, and possibility, I really see the next 250 years, again, 2026 will be the, the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. I see the next 250 years as, as full of possibility. I, I think it won't be the United States as the exceptional nation as it was in the earlier part of our history, but I do see it as a great nation. So the book is Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. It's written by my guest, Anne-Marie Slaughter, and published by Princeton University Press. But for now, Anne-Marie, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. Such a great conversation. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.